New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guests today are Zimona Weiss, Alexander Blair, and Alexander Edling. Zimona Weiss is Professor of Marketing Strategy and Performance at Goethe University in Frankfurt. Her research revolves around the interactions among a firm's marketing strategies, financing choices, and performance implications. Alexander Blair is an Associate Professor of Marketing at the Frankfurt School of Finance and Management. His research interests lie at the intersection of digital marketing, customer relationship management, and consumer decision-making. And Alexander Edling is an Associate Professor of Marketing at KU Leuven, Belgium. He works on quantitative marketing questions relating to the interface between marketing and finance, as well as social media and influencer marketing. Thank you all for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Influencers are so important to marketers, but how to assess the pros and cons of different follower counts is a topic of great discussion, which is why I was so excited when after my interview with Alexander Edling about his research into the impact of ad partnership disclosures, that he mentioned this study that we're going to be discussing today. And when thinking about follower counts, the current marketing wisdom is that with someone like Kim Kardashian, who has about 318 million Instagram followers, you can get great reach, but it'll also cost you a lot. And the engagement might not be as good as if you worked with 3000 people who had 106,000 followers. Followers. But none of this has been scientifically studied. And prior to your work, I don't know that anybody had, had studied it. Is that right? Yes, pretty much under-researched, yeah. So first of all, can you share your hypothesis about follower count and engagement and what you expected to see? Well, overall, when we talk about engagement, we mean the absolute number of, say, likes or comments or mentions. So we're, we're not interested per se in the study of a relative measure, but first of all, of the like aggregate uh, numbers. So our expectation was that as follower count increases, we will first see an increase in absolute numbers of engagement per post, but then at some point see a decrease. So that this boils down to an inverted U-shaped relationship between the number of followers an influencer has and the engagement that a post or a story that influencer publishes receives. Ah, so, but backing up a bit, do consumers actually even notice follower accounts? So what we did to, to look at that is that we had two studies on that. So the first one, was using eye tracking, quite a novel web-based eye tracking measure, where we actually showed participants' profiles of real Instagram influencers and gave them the task to evaluate how likely they are to engage with the four, and that's what we call our treatment group. And the other group got the task to just view the profiles as they would normally do on Instagram. And what we found there is that the ones in the engagement group or the treatment group were actually looking at the follower count area on the screen for a longer period of time. So that is the first hint that showed us, okay, obviously, follower account is something that people consider. And then in another lab experiment, we manipulated influencer follower accounts. So we had three different 
types of influencers, very low followers, so something like 3,000 followers, medium, something like 200K followers, and very high, so above 3 million followers. And we were actually able to show that the engagement likelihood decreases monotonically with higher follower count. Wow. So... So it sounds like, yes, consumers do look at follower counts. That's true. And that also your laboratory setting produced the inverted U. When when you're looking at this inverted U, was there a consistent follower count or range of follower count that was the inflection point? So when I say we look at engagement and we look at the number of engagements, we I mean that we study different types of engagement. So likes and comments and mentions. And for stories, we looked at the number of clicks. We found different inflection or turning points based on these different metrics. Oh. Um, yeah, but overall, we see that on average for posts, we see an inflection point of roughly 1.4 million followers. And for stories or clicks on stories, it's a little less. It's 1.2 approximately. But still, you're in the millions. Yes, that's... we're like slightly above the million. Yeah, that's amazing. So if I am a marketer at a brand, are there ways that I can mitigate this, can I flatten that U-shape? So what we look at is two moderators, basically. And this goes to your question. So the first the first flattening effect that we see of this inverted U-shape is when influencers collaborated with brands that are less known. And the idea with that is that we see this inverted U-shape because we, as we explained, the engagement rate goes down as you have more followers because people feel less connected. And on the other hand, you have the increasing reach, which together leads to this inverse U-shape. Now, if the influencer can do something that lets the followers feel more connected to him or her, then the loss, so to say, that you have on the relative engagement would become not that strong. And then the, the U-shape that we see overall might be weakening. So that would be the key that you would try to do. Now, you would achieve that in our case here by working with brands that are less known. So if we work with brands that are less known, this is maybe riskier for the, for the influencer. It's harder to scare up these brands sometimes and collaborate with them. And so if an influencer does that, so goes our then this shows basically their investment in the relationship with their followers and then this inverted u-shape flattens so it's to their benefit to work with less known brands that's the first part and the second part is that a second moderator to this effect is a content customization so with content customization it's a similar idea that the influencer can convey effort that he or she puts into the relationship and so if she doesn't follow a brand script or or the likes where all the influencers in a specific campaign use the same wording in their captions for instance but the influencer is more uh, independent and uses his or her own words, then this can also convey this effort that the influencer puts in to really think about what might the audience like. And then we also see the inverted U-shape flatten. Interesting. Now I have some questions about each different type of moderating activity. So first I want to touch on this content creation. So from an operational standpoint, this is the brands letting the influencer create their own message, leaning into the authenticity of their voice and their style. Correct. I just want to make sure I'm understanding that. Yeah. So we argue less in terms of authenticity, more in terms of to which extent do you really put effort into this, right? Do you use run-of-the-mill scripts? And and authenticity is one aspect of that, but there is maybe maybe more to that. It's a specific amount of work, so to say, that the influencer is willing to engage in terms to 
or in terms of fostering the relationship with the followers. So, but yes, in general, yes. Right. So this is something that is often told to marketers. They're told that young consumers want this. And it sounds like it isn't just a nice to have, it's a need to have. And so while marketers might not like this loss of control, <laughs> because they, that's one of the things people, especially traditional marketers, really like to control the messaging. But it sounds like they'll have a better return on their investment if they release some of that control. Is that a, a fair thing to say? Let's, that's let's how, say sorry. No, Alex, go ahead. Sorry. That's exactly how we think about it. So it's this, it's this trade-off whether uh, as a company you want to have a lot of control, but then your message becomes uniform. And then it's more like advertising again, right? Where all the influencers use the same message that you give to them. And as you say, sometimes there's there are benefits when you don't have to rely on a specific script. Let's say you're maybe an insurance company or a bank, then maybe it's more important that you don't say the wrong things. Mm. If you can give the influencers more leeway, then they can really make something of it. And that can be to the benefits of everyone. How much did, did doing this help move that inflection point on the curve? Did, did it, it, was it still, or did it truly flatten it out? There was no dip. Well, it did flatten or it does flatten. So it's, it's too two effects that we observe for this customized content creation. The first is that the curve becomes flatter. So the really big influencers suffer less from higher follow account as in, you know, it perceived lower tie strength. And then the second effect is this movement of the inflection point. So the point where follow account leads to lower engagement is, is happening at a later point. Right. So we see the inflection point moving to the right and the curve flattening for content, customized content creation. So if our inflection point was between 1.2 million and 1.4 million, where where would our bands be now? Just looking at the content creation piece. So we studied this for different metrics individually. So there is not like this okay. one number that I can give you, okay. uh, but it does significantly shift. And it, yeah. The, the there, is, is there a percentage that it, just in terms of if you're a marketer and you're selling into a very nervous senior leadership team of seeding <laughs> control, you know, is there a percent they can say, look, it's this percent more impact or is there something that like well there isn't not that one percentage that, okay. uh, that i can give you based on the particular models that we estimated okay okay well and then looking at the brands and you mentioned brand awareness how did you determine how aware people were of a brand so what we did is we used a very established measure it's brand awareness by the market research agency YouGov and what YouGov does, some listeners might know it, they more or less ask a survey or a panel of panelists every day about their brand perceptions and also about their brand awareness for all kinds of brands. And we use this measure that's been previously used in other marketing articles to measure brand awareness for the brands that we have in our data set. What we also did is as a robustness check, we 
coded brand awareness ourselves. We used multi-coder approach and looked at the brands in our sample and coded them on a, on a scale from one to seven. So that's how we approached this brand awareness measurement task, which was not that clear for us before how to how to do it, but that appeared to be the, the most logical way for us. Does the YouGov, do they parse by demographics? Or were you looking actually, at it as a... As a- it, it, that's that's a very good point. What we use is their general measure, which is based on the general population. So it's kind of representative mm. for the general population. So you might argue that Instagram uses younger consumers, Generation Z, and so forth. But to make our results as representative, as generalizable as possible, we use this yeah, general measure and would be probably interesting to look in a follow-up study how that might change if you use yeah younger consumers and their brand awareness for that. Well, what's interesting is in Instagram, people, marketers are chasing audiences. They're segmenting the audiences. And so what I was wondering about is, is tipping points. For instance, Glossier is a beauty brand that might not be very well known, Gen Pop, but is very well known within certain target target demographics. And if level of engagements alter, if you're dealing with a popular but niche brand that there's a high affinity for, like within that, that it's a shared, that it feels I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's a brand which, let's say Gen Z, knows that the general population doesn't know about, but they really know about and they feel very attached to whether that would suffer or not improve or if it would be fine because you're part of the in-group, the in-club. And and so I was curious about if there would be any shifts. So that would be a really interesting thing to look into. I know this Y-Pulse, who I often interview, they found differences between awareness for Gen Z and millennials and particularly around fashion and tech. Those two areas. It's it's definitely a right point. What we argue is that especially large influencers, they use brand awareness in the general population as a kind of cue Mm. uh, for their investment into the brand. So if it's a well-known brand such as L'Oreal, they more are more or less yeah, not risking anything if they work together with them. If right. they are working together with a generally less known brand that might be a niche brand that's very much into social media and so forth, still for them it might be somewhat risky because yeah, not many people know about it, maybe a certain consumer group on Instagram. But that's our general argument that we say these especially large influencers have to somehow invest into smaller brands that might be very well known on social media, but for the general population, it's not the case. That's how our theoretical reasoning goes. But as I said, right, if we had had the data, it would have been very interesting to yeah. have that as a, as a follow-up or alternative analysis, right? Right. How much did brand awareness flatten this inverted you? I mean, obviously, to to Zimona's point, you don't. Ha- it's it's not like a singular amount. But were they equally 
significant in their flattening effect. Yes. So the same applies to to brand awareness too. Although we find that while for content customization, we see this flattening of the curve and the shift of the turning point for post and story. For brand awareness, we only find these effects for posts. So we don't replicate it for stories, which is interesting. Um, That is interesting. Huh. That is interesting. So when you combine, did you combine low brand awareness with authentic posts? Was the result additive, multiplicative? Not so much. I mean, was there, I mean, I guess the question is, if you're a relatively unknown brand, can you get away with more control or vice versa? So, so, we did- so sorry, we want to go, you go. You go ahead. It's fine. You go ahead. So, this is again an interesting question and it would mean to combine the two moderators that we look at individually we look at brand awareness in one model and we look at content customization in another model and looking at both together this multiplicative effect would have been a three-way moderation so it gets a little bit technically now and which complicates things further that we have to get this inverted U-shaped quadratic effect of follower count, which would would complicate things even further. Mm. So we did not do that in our model. What one can say is that it's additive, right? So if you have brand awareness plus or low brand awareness plus authentic posts, it's helpful. Nevertheless, we did not really look into this multiplicative moderation issue Mm. because it would just have been too complex for for a model with all these interactions that we already have in there. Right. Is the brand awareness less significant than the the content creation you know ownership by the influencer was one more powerful than the other so the effect size is roughly similar for both of them so in economic terms so to right. speak um, right. yeah so that is comparable interesting i wonder why it didn't affect stories that's so that's really interesting to me you know i often say to people that platforms have purposes for their audiences can marketers extrapolate the results of this study to other platforms and other forms of persuasion? So that's very interesting. Alex, you want to you take that? No, go, go ahead, please. So it's a very interesting question. What happens if we took these results to a platform such as LinkedIn, for example, which is obviously more B2B focused. And mm-hmm. what you can say is that influencer marketing within the B2B sphere is actually growing heavily and there also we see these rather small expert influencers and then the ones that have just millions of followers so based on that one can say it's 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 very similar to the instagram b2c context however we also know from b2b research that the decisions that are made by customers for example are somewhat different to ordinary consumers so they think longer about their decisions, they take more information into consideration. And based on that, one might be a little bit cautious of directly transferring our results. But it's definitely worthwhile to look into that. If you think about something 
such as political advertising. Well, I was thinking obviously... political ads on Twitter, for instance, different platform, different topic, but there are lots of people who are influencers and how would that play out? Exactly, right. So again, you have a similar stage, so to say, that you have maybe regional politicians, just a few thousand followers on Twitter, but very close connections, very close tie strength, as we call it, to their followers. And then you have, of course, big politicians, governors, and so forth, that have millions of followers, but at the same time, people might feel a little bit more distant to them. So again, very, very similar setting at the same time, similar to B2B, we know that political decisions, voting behavior is also different from consumption behavior in consumer markets. Mm. People are a lot more shaped by their upbringing, their social environment. So generally, yes, there are similarities, but there are also some differences and it's definitely (laughs) worthwhile to look into that in the future. Right. Well, you know, also, I was wondering, marketers have been experimenting with with micro-influencers or influencers that certainly have less than millions of followers. So when looking at smaller follower counts, do any of these rules change? I mean, we've been talking, sort of looking at that right end of our inverted U and, and raising it up, so flattening it out. But what about the start of the U on the left-hand side? Do, if you're a a smaller influencer, does working with a big brand actually do better for you? Are some of these rules slightly different if we think about the the way the, the graph goes? So as you say, we're mostly concerned or our results mostly speak to the right-hand side, right? So on the left-hand side, you can think about benefits of working with larger brands maybe, but it's you always have to think about this these two forces of how many people do I reach and how good is my connection with the people that I'm reaching, right? And, and so what we're studying basically is which moderating factors, and so that's in our case, the brands that you work with and the content creation leeway that you have, how do they affect the relationship that you have with each and every person. Now you can think about the it in this way, if you are a small influencer, like you have few followers, then you already have a very strong relationship with your individual followers. And so the moderators that we look at, they don't do much for you, right? Because you already have this strong connection. On the other hand, if you look at the right-hand side there, you can move the needle to some extent, mainly, you know, by working with less known brands, you signal your consumers that you care about them. If you customize your content more, you do the same. But for the smaller influencers, our results don't really speak to, you know, the implications for them are potentially less important than we think about them for the for the larger ones who suffer from this decrease in the relationship strength as they gather up more followers. Well, I guess what I'm thinking about is not so much from the influencer standpoint, but mm-hmm. from a brand standpoint. So yeah, so if- for a brand, I mean, it's always the sorry. The, from a brand standpoint, it's, it's you should always work with medium influencers, basically, right? That's the that's maybe our our takeaway. And just if you're a less known brand, you get more leeway to work with smaller ones, yes, but also with larger ones. I um, see. And- and if you allow them more leeway in content creation, then it's the same, right? So maybe that's a that's the angle how we how we think about it, right? When when you're mentioning you're looking at it from a brand perspective, how critical is it that you hit this sweet spot of the optimal follower count? And under certain conditions, this becomes more or less important. Actually, when when we were talking at the very top of the interview and we were breaking down 
the follower counts. It was small, was around 3,000, medium was 200,000 thereabouts, and large was 3 million and up. Is that what we're talking about when we're talking about medium influencers? Are we talking about the 200K? Is that where that middle is? I, I guess I'm really Captain Obvious here, but I really, what is medium? If that's where I should be focusing my energies as a practitioner, what, where would you define that number? Well, do you want to mention the sweet spots again? or So a medium is for us the where the inflection point sits. So it is at the one point Okay. So it is, that was my, that was my question because when we were looking at the, the lab study that had been defined slightly differently, but so we really are looking at this 1.2 million, 1.4 million. That's where you're at the sweet spot where you get great reach and you still have solid engagement. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Maybe we didn't mention this in the beginning. Maybe we could you know, characterize this a bit more. When we talk about the lab, we're in, in the lab, we're investigating this one force, which is the relationship between the influencer and her audience, right? So this is where we see a decreasing function. That's what Alex meant in the beginning, this monotonically decreasing function. So there, basically, we're showing that the more followers you have, the lower your engagement rate. So the lower the likelihood of any follower that you have to engage, right? So that's we're testing 3 million. We're testing, you know, a few thousand followers. We also tested it in an additional lab study with a bunch of more follower count conditions, basically. And that's a decreasing function. So the more followers you have, the relative engagement goes down more and more. It's only when you bring it together with the reach that increases in the number of followers that you see this inverted. And so that's why the the tipping points, basically, that Simona mentioned from the field are not, so they don't have a one-to-one comparison with the lab, because in the lab, we're only focusing or we're demonstrating the process of this one force, namely the relative engagement. I see. And just quickly, because I should have asked this at the top of a conversation, I didn't. What is the, why is that? What is the theoretical, what is the underpinnings for why the engagement goes down when the follower count goes up? So this idea is rooted in classical social influence and social network theory. So there is a very established literature out there and we build on this literature in designing our model. And there are basically two forces. One is what we call the reach force, which just means that more people see your content or Mm -hmm. see an influencer's content. And then obviously as more followers are associated with an influencer, there is a higher likelihood that, or there are more opportunities for people to see the content, right? Mm -hmm. So that is just like, if you will. So reach is increasing in the number of followers. And then there is a second force, which is what we call the engagement likelihood force. And that relates to the probability that an individual follower has to engage with the content. And what we found by reviewing all of this literature is that this likelihood is decreasing in follower count. That means the more followers an influencer has, the less likely each of these followers is to engage with the content. And why is that? This is because follower count serves as some kind of signal that the influencer will not be able to interact and that there is no way that a true like relationship can be built or like more intimate relationship because I mean the the Kylie Jenners they don't have time let alone interest right in, in replying to each comment or in caring about a like or a share or a mention. So and these two forces the reach that like mechanically increases in follower account and then 
the engagement likelihood of each follower that decreases in follower account. This combination, once we multiply the, uh, these two forces, this combination is what results in the inverted U. This is just like a mathematical calculation that one can do. And yeah, that leads to the inverted U that we also find in the field. Interesting. And one other point before we wrap up, and I'm curious about, you looked at real world campaigns. And so aren't people paying for reach in those instances? It isn't, you know, earned reach necessarily, or was it earned reach? What What is the, if you can pay for reach and, and the issue is really engagement, I guess that's how much was that teased out? Do you mean the extent to which you can buy followers and then- Well, no, you buy- <sighs> Meta Facebook throttles <laughs> how much reach a, once once a an entity is seen as a business they want their piece essentially and this functions this shows up more I think in Facebook I'm not as sure about with Instagram but you don't get as much organic reach as you used to and they want so this is why campaigns are paying to push content not only are they paying they're paying to to push it on I don't know if that functions in influencers, if they also, in addition to paying the influencer, if they, there's a fee for it to spread through the network effect. So we, we don't look at that specifically, right? This opportunity to, to push content non-organically. Right. We don't, we don't look at that. What we do look into is the algorithm because there's obviously a the the Instagram algorithm and we rule out that our results that we find are actually a consequence of the algorithm. Oh, okay. So well, that's, we, yeah, okay. yeah, that probably goes a little bit into that goes into exactly you, to the question. What you mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for sharing this. It's so interesting and so valuable, and I could geek out forever about it. But our time is up, and thank you so much for your time. Thanks for the opportunity. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time, right here on Up Next.